0: Hallelujah! Couldn't work out why the, kids, the teenagers were always over there. <laughs> now, this morning during the early morning prayer meeting, I had a bit of a, a revelation concerning COVID and not being permitted to sing because, you know, we we're all grotted by that. But um, it dawned on me that it's just possible that God is using this this prohibition to stir such a passion and a hunger in us to move us into a whole new realm of worship, a whole new concept and understanding of being able to, to shift the fan so that my notes don't blow away. Um, sorry, mate. <laughs> Thanks. It's yours. Um, a whole new concept and passion for us to move past what we've known into something new and vital. Christ no comparison some folk have, uh, have latched on to the erroneous misconception that the old testament is irrelevant Jay and I were driving up this morning from Cooner, and I said honey rattle out the names of some people that we've known in the past who don't believe it's Christians who don't believe that the the old testament is for today they believe you should never preach from it. I used to get into so much trouble in New Zealand because about 60% on average of my messages came out of the Old Testament. And people would whinge and complain, and I loved it. But uh, not, I didn't love getting upset, but I love the Old Testament. But uh, people say you don't need the Old Testament. Now, I, I've mentioned... This quote from, uh, from St. Augustine before, and I'm sure you all heard it before. It's talking and comparing the Old Testament to the New. And Augustine said, the old is in the new contained. The new is in the old explained. The old is in the new concealed. The new that's <laughs> in the wrong order. Is in the Old Revealed. Great to 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 get that into your head and understand it, because you can't fully understand the Old Testament without the New Testament, and and there are many vital truths in the New Testament that only become clear as you read the Old Testament. Our task is to cover. <laughs> Hebrews chapters 5, 6 and 7 this morning and chapters 8 and 9 next Sunday. And I've been assigned a very specific agenda for these two weeks. Again, I was um, asking the oracle when the last time was that I taught through Hebrews exegetically through the book of Hebrews. And Jane reminded me that uh, it's over 40 years. And I um, we used to be in a particular church where if you didn't preach i think i've told you just for 90 minutes you didn't have the goods <laughs> three times a week sunday morning sunday night and uh yeah sunday morning sunday night and wednesday nights i had to cook up four and a half hours of of material every week week in week out and um the last time I taught systematically through Hebrews was way back then. And I reckon those 16 chapters, 16 chapters in Hebrews? 13, 14, the bunch of them, would have taken about four months, 90 minutes once a week, just to get through the book. And uh, when Renee told me I'd be covering chapter... Chapter 6 this morning, my interest was, was piqued because the last time I, I preached on Hebrews 6, I only did Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, and um, that took me eight, eight, eight hours, um, so strap yourselves in. <laughs> Who knows, And I've got to be um, disciplined this morning and not get off on a sidetrack. But who knows, without looking at your devices and your Bibles, Hebrews 6, 1 and 2. I'll give you a hint. Paul says, let's go into perfection. Paul, the writer of the Hebrews says, let's go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation of, and he names six fundamental first principles, oracles of God that every believer needs to know. He calls it baby's milk. Who can tell me the six? Anyone? I'll settle for one baptisms is number three sorry i can't hear my for the fan repentance number two repentance from dead works that's number one okay faith toward god is number two repentance from dead works faith toward god baptisms plural laying on of the hands resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment those six fundamental first principles the writer says is baby food the writer says to the um the hebrews in the last two verses of uh of five chapter five he says you guys should be teachers by now but instead you're still on baby mood you need to baby food you need to move from this stuff onto solid food onto mature food And that's for all of us. I'm not going to talk about that again this morning. When the writer to the Hebrews wrote this this letter, the the Hebrews, the recipients of this letter, were were believers who had come to faith through personal eyewitness accounts, first-generation accounts, of people who had seen Jesus, heard Jesus, walked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, and had, had, had just seen everything that he did. So these Hebrew Christians, they're not novices. They've been around for a while. They'd successfully, successfully endured hardships and persecution for their belief. But sadly, the writer says, you've become dull of hearing, and you're in danger of drifting away. These Jewish believers had had moved, moved from Judea, judaism into christianity and now many of them wanted to go back to judaism in order to escape the persecution from their fellow countrymen and the writer of hebrews exhorts them to go on to perfection go on to maturity and his his appeal is based on the superiority of christ over the old redundant judaic system hence our series title christ there is no comparison and the writer tells him that Christ is, is better than the angels. Um, Rod did that in week two. He's better than the angels because the angels worship Christ. He's better than Moses because he created Moses. He's superior to the Aaronic priesthood because Jesus' sacrifice was once for all time, whereas the Aaronic priests had to sacrifice daily, week after week after week. Christ's better in the law because he came to fulfill the law. He's better than the old covenant because he mediates a new and a better covenant. And to sum it all up, he says there's more to be gained in Christ than there was to be lost in Judaism. Hebrews tells us that Christ is our eternal high priest. After the order of this bloke named Melchizedek, this Melchizedek fellow, Stay by the mic. This Melchizedek guy, um, Genesis 14, I think it's verses 18 through 20, talks about Melchizedek. It's the only time his name pops up in the whole Old Testament, except one other time when David, um, speaking uh, uh, prophetically in, in Psalm 110, it's a Messianic psalm, and David from left field drags this verse that says, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, speaking of Messiah. He just pulls it out of nowhere. And Mel doesn't turn up again for the rest of the Bible, except here in the book of Hebrews. The old is in the new explained. The writer of the Hebrews tells them that when they press on into Christ... The end result is tried and tested faith. The end result is a, a developed self-discipline that's formed and an and agape that's, that's demonstrated in, in their good works for everyone to see. As Tricia pointed out three weeks ago in her excellent introduction, Hebrews presents Christ as the human divine, perfectly human, fully human and perfectly divine fully divine he's the prophet priest and king for those of you who are budding theologues you'll sleep well tonight knowing this in Christology that's the the theology of Christ there's a term that's used to explain Christ's humanity and his divinity you ready this term is known as hypostatic union. from the Greek word, hypostasis. It's a medical term, actually. Now, I know many of you will sleep better tonight. Some, like me, will lie I wait, pondering that for the next week. Hypostasis, hypostatic union. You'll probably never hear it again. And, but Hebrews, Hebrews, the writer forcefully asserts Christ's deity and Christ's humanity. There's more than 20 descriptive titles in the book of Hebrews about Jesus and about his, his, his attributes and his accomplished character. There's titles like the apostle and a high priest, um, the mediator, the heir of all things, the author and perfect, perfecter or the author and finisher of our faith. Over the last three weeks, we've seen or well, we've glimpsed the superiority of Christ's person. This morning and next week, we're going to look at the superiority of Christ's work And finally, I think it's Rod and Michael are going to round it all off with the superiority of the Christian's walk in faith, walk of faith. The Bible makes a distinction between a prophet and a priest. Both are officers ordained by God, unctioned by God, sanctioned by God. But the prophet is appointed to be God's mouthpiece, to people, God's representative, to people, God's messenger, to people, um, someone who interprets God's will, to people. That's a prophet. Whereas a priest, the priest is a representative of ours to God. The priest had the privilege of approach to God, speaking and, and acting on behalf of the people to God. Christ certainly fulfilled the role of a prophet. There's no question about that. But he also fulfilled the priest and fulfills the priestly role. He does so as our sinless mediator. And because he was a sinless mediator, he could procure the favor of God for you and me through his death on the cross. His priestly work as a mediator is is based on the Old Testament and it's explicitly affirmed in the New Testament. Mr Soundbox Man, mate, can I have the, the time on that screen? Is that too hard? Because I took my watch off thinking I won't need it. <laughs> and I can't see the clock at the back, which is probably a good thing. Is that possible? Uh, no, okay. Uh, Trish will throw something at me. <laughs> okay. The writer, he hammers home this theme to try and... It looks just like mine. <laughs> you got one like mine too. <laughs> Thanks, mate. He, he hammers home this theme to try and prevent his readers from giving up the substance of their faith for the shadow of their faith. And they would do that by abandoning their current faith and regressing back to the old Judaic system. This letter was written to, to encourage them to, to grow up, to mature in Christ, and to put away their spiritual dullness and degradation. Hebrews chapter 4, the last two verses, which I'm not supposed to do, but I'm going to read, um, kick this section off, really. Have we got it there, Mr. Music? Oh, look, he's got everything up there. That's what I had for breakfast. Hebrews 4, verse 16 through 17 says... Since we have a great high priest who's entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness. He's faced all of the same feelings and testings that we have, yet he didn't sin. So let's come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we'll receive his mercy and we'll find grace to help us when we need it most. Oh, it is there. You know, at Mount Sinai, God spoke to Moses and he said to Moses that only Aaron and those of the tribe of Levi could ever be priests. But there were prophetic indications throughout the Old Testament that a superior priest was going to arrive one day. And In Psalm 110, verse 4, that the psalm I mentioned before, where David just sort of blurts this thing out, he says... The Lord's taken an oath and won't break his vow. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Guarantee no one knew what that meant. Certainly not until the writer of the Hebrews wrote his his epistle. The writer of the Hebrews actually quotes that half line, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, five times in two chapters. He says it over and over and over and over and over. And it sort of becomes, okay, you're only going to say it once. But you find in scripture where where something is is repeated ad nauseum, God's saying to us, you thickos, listen to this. Understand it. Get it into yourself. David said prophetically that there was going to be a, a descendant of his who was going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, And not after the order of Aaron or Levi. David, of course, came from the tribe of Judah. So none of his descendants could come from the tribe of Levi. They had to be from David's tribe if they're his descendants. And this new priest, this super priest, was going to be a priest forever. Unlike the the temporary priests of Levi, who only served until they curled their toes up. As soon as they died, all over. Later on, the prophet um, Zechariah writes in Zechariah 6, yes, he'll build a temple for the Lord. There he will receive royal honour, and he'll rule as king from his throne. He'll also serve as a priest from his throne. And there'll be perfect harmony between his two roles. Again, Messiah will be a priest-king, like Melchizedek not simply a priest like Aaron. And so the foundations for this greater priestly office were laid in the Old Testament. But it's not until you get to the New Testament, not until you get to the book of of Hebrews in chapter 7, that the writer declares the identity of this mysterious priest-king that both David and Zechariah spoke about. And the, the writer to the Hebrews is able to join up all the dots and say, This priest king is actually Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises concerning another priest after the order of Melchizedek. So who is Melchizedek? Like I said, he's in verse 18 to 20 of of Genesis 14 and one line in, um, in Psalm 110 verse 4. That's it. Don't know anything else about him. Genesis 14 says abraham returned from his his victory over the kings abraham was living a little way away from lot because they separated lot was living in in sodom and um, this bunch of kings led by a guy whose name i never can remember but his, his name starts with cheddar I always call him Cheddar, okay? So Cheddar and his, 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 his mate kings, they come and they make war on, on the postcode of, of Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding postcodes. And they take people captive and they loot and plunder the place. And one of the, the, the people they take captive is, of course, Lot, Abraham's nephew. And somebody does a runner from that raid because he knows where Abraham and Abraham's related to Lot. He goes to Abraham where Abraham's um, got his, his camper trailer set up. He says, mate, Cheddar and his bunch of kings, they've come and they've they've looted and sacked the whole area. And he's taken Lot and Lot's family and everything they have with them." So Abraham, he musters his 300-odd um, servants. These weren't warriors, these were just guys that work for, for Abie, and um, they pursue the, uh, the kings, and this is where, well, they speak very sternly to the kings, and uh, it says in, in verse 14, after their confrontation with the kings, Abram returned from his victory over the kings, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, a priest of the Most High God, brought Abraham bread and wine Melchizedek blessed Abram, saying, blessed be Abram by El Elyon, by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who's defeated your enemies for you. And Abram Abram gave Melchizedek 10% kickback of all the stuff he'd taken. GST, God's sustaining tax. And then Hebrews 7 picks it up. And he says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from speaking sternly to the kings, and he blessed him. And Abraham gave him the 10% of all the loot. Melchizedek, first his name being translated means king of righteousness, and then king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, or genealogy, or beginning of days or end of life. But made like the Son of God. He remains a priest continually. Consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Aby gave 10% of the spoils. But why is the priesthood of of Christ, why is this Melchizedekic priesthood superior to the Levitical priesthood? Firstly, it was superior because Old Testament priests died and they had to be replaced but Christ establishes an everlasting priesthood when he conquered death. And the Bible says in verse 24 of of Hebrews 7, he continues forever. Romans and and Hebrews tell us that even now, Christ is involved in his priestly work of interceding on our behalf. There is no no other person in heaven who intercedes on our behalf but Jesus he sits at the right hand of God and he spends his time saying, Father, that one needs your help. He does not no one else does it. Like other priests. Second, secondly, other priests had to continually offer sacrifices every day. But Christ offered himself, scripture says, once for all. Like other priests, Christ offered a sacrifice but unlike other priests he offered himself as the perfect sinless sacrifice for once and for all. Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. His superior to Aaron and his descendants in every way. So what does that mean for us today? What, what relevance really is that? Glad you asked that. What are the implications of Christ's priestly ministry well firstly it means that we can be reconciled to God because of the the sacrificial work of of Christ on the cross we can be reconciled I used to do accounting and when you do a reconciliation what you're doing is you're balancing the end numbers your debits and credits gotta balance they don't balance there's something wrong Christ came to balance the books for us he came to set us right between ourselves and God as priest he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sin sinners who who repent and turn from their sin and trust in Christ's free gift of salvation can experience forgiveness and be reconciled to God. Secondly, we can pray with confidence. Believers can pray with confidence because of Christ's priestly work. Neither reconciliation or effective prayer is possible without what Jesus did for us, without that that sacrifice from Christ. And because he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice reconciliation and prayer are now possible even right this very moment jesus is offering intercession on our behalf he's praying for us giving us confidence that god hears our prayers and takes every pleasure in answering our prayers when they're according to his will lastly means that we can live as priests and kings. One final benefit is our becoming priestly kings. It's a wonderful verse in Romans, Romans chapter one. I think it's verse seven. It says, "For he has made us, he's made us, kings and priests to serve our God." Christ's sacrifice results in our reconciliation to God, but also in our admission into the royal priesthood through him. We're priests. We're royal priests. Well, I'm excited. Amen. (laughs) Because of that, we can offer our prayer and our praise and our lives to the one who redeemed us. This morning, you might not have actually done that. You might not have offered your life to the one who redeemed you because unless you make this transaction where you say Jesus I want to avail myself of what you did for me unless you do that you fail to balance the books with God Jesus says right now he says all you got to do is acknowledge that you're a sinner turn to him and say Jesus I can't do this I need this reconciliation that the Bible talks about and I can only do it because you paid the price for my sin and I accept that price paid on my behalf and this morning I make you my Lord and my Savior it's such a simple thing to do but it's so fundamentally vital that you do it let's pray Heavenly Father, each and every person needs to come to that point where they acknowledge their sin and their need for you. Lord, we thank you that you sent your son to be that priestly king to make us kings and priests. We ask, Lord, that we would avail each one of us ourselves of the invitation that you offer us this morning make us into your children as we we turn to you we pray because we want to glorify your name and all God's people said amen